Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Excellent. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. Uh, it's July 2nd, 2019. I'm here at Archery Summit with Ian Birch. Ian, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, you bet. Um, let's start you by asking, uh, why wine? Well, um, I grew up Catholic, so I guess you could say I started drinking wine when I was in the first grade. <laughs> so it's been the sort of um, mythical drink. Um, my dad grew up in agriculture, and he, uh, he actually sold chemicals for my entire childhood. Um, I learned at a very young age that you could pick a weed or spray a weed. And um, it took my neighbor asking me what I was doing in my backyard, spraying weeds as a kid. And uh, he asked us if we had a permit for <laughs> the spray that we we're putting in our backyard on some weeds. So I went and told my dad and I was like, hey, you know, our neighbor's asking if we have a permit. And he's like, well, which one was it? And I was like, it's the, it's the, the fire guy. And he's like, okay. You're not spring weeds anymore. <laughs> I wish that guy had said something a lot sooner. Um, I've, I've actually gotten away from using uh, herbicides. Um, the more I've gotten into this industry, and it's something that we're striving to do at Archery Summit now. Um, I've, I worked at Evening Land, and we were biodynamic for years. Mm-hmm. So I guess you could say that I grew up um, in a sort of a chemical environment in agriculture. Um, I had a a garden when I was a young kid mm-hmm. and grew um, a variety of different things, including grapes. But uh, I guess it was in high school where my teacher, Mr. Jin, talked about viticulture one day. And I raised my hand and asked him what that meant. And he said, it's a science of growing grapes. And I didn't think that that was a possibility. <laughs> on this planet. But uh, I'm glad that he did bring it up because everybody's filling in college applications. It was like, what are you gonna do when you graduate? And I knew at that moment that um, I wanted to make wine. And uh, my philosophy is something better comes along, take it. And I don't think anything better has come along or will come along. Um, yeah, I went to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. I studied wine and viticulture. And my college professor, Keith Patterson, who's no longer with us, unfortunately, um, he was my mentor and my advisor. And he would talk about organ, I'd say, probably once a week. It's <laughs> like, if I could do everything differently, I would be up in organ. Mm-hmm. Organ was on the fringes for a long time. And he's, he always talked about organ kind of being in the, the, main, the mainstream, the main thread, mm-hmm. having enough heat units to mm-hmm. you know, grow grapes successfully year after year. And after working through the world of wine, I always knew that I wanted to end up in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're at Cal Poly and you kind of have this, this notion. So what happens next for you? So I, I, was, I, was, I was actually at Penfolds. I was working in Penfolds, uh, Australia. And I applied to Cal Poly while I was there. Got accepted, I think, because I was working at Penfolds, you know, like in their Weybridge and, you know, just testing sugars and pH and TA. And uh, while I was there, I got accepted Cal Poly. And yeah, I, I, when I came back, um, I, I headed straight there. I was actually a fruit science major that went into viticulture. The viticulture was always a minor. 
I was uh, one of the first to graduate from the wine and viticulture major. Cool. But um, while I was at Cal Poly, I worked at Gallo at their experimental research facility, which was awesome. Just a small group of, I think there was six of us in uh, this massive network of people. And it was over in Hillsburg, so it was beautiful. They put me up in a house there. Um, I took a, a little time off from college before I graduated because I felt like the study program was almost there in terms of winemaking, but wasn't quite there. Um, it was great to get that experience at Gallo. Go back to Cal Poly, hang out with my friends for one more like rich term, and, uh, and then take off from there. And right after I graduated from Cal Poly, I got into uh, a work study program in the Loire. So I flew uh, to France, I think a month after I graduated. I learned how to speak French uh, just listening to Pimsleur speak and read essentials <laughs> on my bike on my way to school each day and my way home. Um, it's always just like kind of a gut-wrenching feeling when you're flying into Charles de Gaulle and the lady starts speaking to you in French. You have no idea what she's saying. But that was a, that was a very interesting transition. <laughs> but um, yeah. So tell me about your experiences. First of all, I'm curious about your experiences with Gallo. Uh, so experimental research facility. So what kind of stuff were you working on? It was awesome. So we had uh, crop load experiments. You know, like how much how much could you hang on a vine and still have that wine, you know, taste good? Do you do two buds per spur and have four clusters, or do you do three buds per spur and have eight? Um, they had such a robust experimental research facility. It's the largest privately owned experimental wine experimental research facility on the planet so they would have a library of, of every experiment that we ran um, we operated on four or five different vineyards you know counting clusters measuring canes and we would we'd harvest from each one of the different plots um, and make wine into two ton fermenters so um, we did like fertigation experiments crop load experiments um, gosh they let me run my own experiment on um, yeast assemblable nitrogen. So it, it's something that they have their interns do because you have access to such beautiful laboratories. Mm -hmm. So it, that was incredible to have a mini, you know, research project in, during my stay there. Mm -hmm. But it was also fortuitous too because the winemaker um, in the experimental research facility quit the first day of harvest. <laughs> so I worked in the vineyard all day and then I worked in the winery, you know, essentially in the afternoon into the evening, mm -hmm. and I paid off 80% of my student loan, like during that internship alone. So it was, it was awesome. I learned a lot. I, I think I learned a lot about, you know, just I'd say the, the pain in the details when you're running these sort of experiments, like how important it is to gather all the data and to be consistent and have the same person you know, count and um, just having sort of a robust protocol. It was uh, it was very eye opening for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And tell me about your experience in France then in the, in the Loire. Oh, it was awesome. It was that was where I fell in love with wine. Mm -hmm. So I'd worked at Australia and at Gallo up to that point, and you know, Gallo was great from an experimental uh, standpoint, just how things run, how things run very well and efficiently, and. Uh, you know, Penfold was cool, but again, you're just doing this tiny little thing in a, in a very large company. 
and in the Loire, I was learning how to drive a tractor the first day of work um, from a guy, his name was Tantan, uh, Tintin, and you know, he only spoke French, so he kept saying like, sa, duck, sa, suck. And I was like, what are you looking through my dictionary for S-A-W? It's like, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. So I went back home that day and they're like, no, saw, it's like a C with a little line under it. It means that. I'm like, oh man. So, you know, the next day I knew what saw meant. I had a list going. Um, you know, I would I'd drive their kid to school some days, uh, two hour breaks during the middle of the day. Um, everybody was so kind and we, had like a morning huddle every day. So talk about like, okay, this group's gonna go into the vineyard, this group's gonna stay in the winery. And you know, everything smelled so awesome. <laughs> I mean, the whole kitchen smelled like moldy cheese. And you know, like there was a cellar underneath the winery. And you know, it just felt like you're doing everything all the time. And I knew at that moment that I liked that sort of hands-on, uh, you know, people have their own responsibilities, but you can do everything if you wanted. They would blind us on wines uh, every afternoon. So my boss, Joe, would uh, just come through with like this little craft, you know, full of like red or white wine and he'd pour it into everybody's glass. And you know, like in America, it's like, what variety is that, um, you know, what year? Mm -hmm. And for them, it's like, what region? But they were kind enough to, you know, say like, what variety, like Kelsey and they would, they, they were really kind to me and made me kind of feel like I was at home because, you know, we, they dissected wine like I would. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, just really sort of blossomed my, my breadth of wine knowledge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think because you couldn't speak a lot or communicate effectively all the time, like I just put all of my, my words into my, my hands and my muscles and just tried to just run hard and work my tail off to maybe overcompensate for the fact that I wasn't really good at communicating. But I was there for about six months and in the end, uh, I think we all fell in love with each other and um, I definitely fell in love with France and that small feel, Chenin Blanc and Cabernet Franc. And uh, yeah, it was probably my most formative experiment or experience uh, to date in the wine industry. So you kind of you kind of fallen for it now. You were in it. You were in it. And so, what how, what did you do next? How did you decide where to head next? So I mean, I think it was how everybody likes to travel. Um, I was out of college, so I, I was like, you know, I, I still have time to kind of like have fun and learn. Mm -hmm. So um, I had my sights on New Zealand, and I went and I worked at, and I think this is I should have learned from my my past. I worked for, for a place called Spy Valley mm -hmm. in the Marlboro Valley. And, you know, it was, it was a good experience. I think I sort of just settled for it because I needed to work somewhere. But it's just a larger place, lots of uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Um, again, just sort of doing just something, something small in a large facility. Um, the, the environment was beautiful. Um, after that experience, though, I, I uh, called up Ripon, which was on the the bottom of the South Island and I asked if I could prune for them and you know she's like oh well I think we've got enough people I was like let me just sit down with you please you know and you know just have a conversation so I sat down with Charlie Mills uh, the daughter of the owner who ran the vineyards and um, you know we had a very nice talk I explained to her that 
you know, I'd, I'd love to print for them. I wanted to stay in New Zealand a little while longer, you know, make some money so I could afford to travel where I was going to go to next. And uh, she, she, she said at the end of the interview, she's like, well, what if it snowed? Like, are you going to go and snowboard or are you going to come to work? I'm like, I'm going to come to work. So she gave me the job. So New Zealand ended up on a very positive note. Um, I always like to travel somewhere unwine related in, be in between internships. So uh, I used to go to Asia uh, after I would intern somewhere just to sort of lay low, be some more warm, not talk about wine, see if I could shake myself off the, off the path. But um, that never happened. <laughs> Uh, but then after New Zealand, I got a job working in South Africa, mm -hmm. um, this place called Wuppenberg or Hoopenberg. Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, right outside of Stellenbosch, really young boss. Uh, um, he, he was English, uh, he's like mid-30s, young 30s, so just still trying to figure out how to manage. So I, I got to learn a lot, I think from him, just trying to organize crews, um, how to build an estate, how to sort of like drive traffic through the tasting room. And I had a really, really nice experience there. This, uh, I'd say the, probably the most divided place I've ever been. You know, just all the different layers of, you know, black versus white, colored versus white, colored versus black. I mean, the amount of stories you would hear about, you know, I guess the woes some of the workers had. Um, just this sort of, I guess, like how people were treated unfairly, um, how people are continued to be treated unfairly. Um, that was very eye-opening for me. But, you know, we're, we're making really tasty Chardonnay. Um, I don't necessarily gravitate towards South African wine now. Um, you don't see it very often. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think for me, more than anything, it was a cultural experience. Um, I was making about $20 a day. And I was working my tail off, and it was funny. I'd always ask my boss for more money, and you know, he's like, "Hey, it's, it's about the experience." And it's like, "Yeah, I, I realize that, but um, you know, I, 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 I thought at that point, it's like, I, I need to, I need to do something more." And I think in South Africa, that's when I drew the line in the sand, and and it, I, I, I knew that I was ready for something else. Mm -hmm. So I, I started looking on WineBusiness.com and um or winejobs.com rather mm -hmm. and they found the job uh in oregon that i would have you know just dreamed of having with dominique lafon as a consultant winemaker seven springs vineyard which is i think one of the more iconic vineyards in the state mm -hmm. and isabel Mounier was assigned uh the task of you know assembling everything and essentially constructing a winery so while I was in South Africa, I, uh, I went at that job very hard and um, was very persistent with Isabel. And when I flew home, uh, or actually when I flew to Portland from Johannesburg, she picked me up and drove me to the vineyards. We tasted some wines and thank God I got that job because I didn't know what else I would do. Yeah. So I, I came to Oregon and you know, just in time for a harvest of... 2008, we finished all the wines that Isabel had made with Christophe Fial and Dominique Lafon, and uh, you know bottled them up, and then set up a facility in Salem. 
So before you even got to Oregon, you had seen most of the kind of New World wine regions. Uh, uh, how do they compare uh, for you? What were your kind of takeaways from each spot that you've kind of brought with you? I think the New World is obsessed with cleanliness. You know, like nothing can be dirty. You got to triple and quadruple clean everything. I think uh, I think the New World is a you know, just obsessed with like microbial contamination, mm -hmm. whereas I feel like in the Old World, you have a little bit more of a you know, sort of an openness to things like, yeah, like if you kill everything with harsh chemicals, then really bad things can come back. Mm -hmm. But if you sanitize effectively, you know, like all these microbes sort of play with one another. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe that translates into the wine and gives the wine a little something extra. But, you know, I, I definitely say that's one of my biggest takeaways. And I think in, in France, like there, there's a built-in sort of know-how. I think in America, like, there's an open slate, so what do you do when you have something new? You know, you ask a lot of questions, you plan, you try not to make mistakes. But I think that, you know, in, in the Loire, um, and even in Burgundy, which I can talk about in a little bit, is I've had a lot of experience over there too. But there's this sort of like understanding. They, they sort of groove with one another in a way that uh, I think the New World doesn't just because there is such a newness here. You know, we scrutinize over rootstock and clone and, you know, like orientation. And I think in, you know, in Burgundy, the amount of times you've asked somebody, or I've, I've asked somebody, like, what clone or rootstock do you have? And they're like, oh, I don't know. I don't, we, don't, we don't care, you know? It's all about, like, what the place gives and what the place says. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that, you know, we sometimes take for granted in the new world is, you know, this, we have to ask questions, we have to plan and be methodical. Mm -hmm. But I feel like when you're in Burgundy or when I was in the Loire, you just sort of look around you and I think a lot of the questions um, are answered on a daily basis without even having this, mm -hmm. to say anything. Mm -hmm. So you'd seen all these places, and but you had you had heard about Oregon early on, and Oregon had been kind of a sounds like a goal for you. So tell me about your first impressions of Oregon when you got here. It was beautiful. I remember driving down, and I still try to remember what what freeway it was. I think it was 18. There's this little corridor um, on 18 before you get to 99W, and I kept thinking like, man, like there's all these beautiful pine trees. Everything was really green and lush. Um, I remember, you know, just going to Seven Springs Vineyard, there was a BD prep that was mixing, a biodynamic prep, and this big copper uh, container, and it was like spinning in circles, and you know, there's this beautiful vortex to like feed the microbes, and I just remember looking out and seeing how green everything was. Just being down in San Luis Obispo, Cal Poly, you know, the topography um, isn't as, I'd say, kind to the eyes. Australia is really, you know, like desolate and then green where there are vineyards. Um, very similar to the Loire. Uh, I guess when you scan the landscapes in Burgundy, uh, you know, I, I feel a lot of that here too in Oregon, especially here at Archery. When I look just uh, to the side of Sokol Blosser, like up onto the hills as I go into like, you know, Domaine Serene and um, like Domaine Jouen, it looks very French to me. So you're at Evening Land, you've got this Seven Springs Vineyard that's pretty legendary, obviously. Uh, what happens next? What, uh, you get through the first harvest and then... It was awesome. I mean, I think it was, it was an interesting transition. So we had Mark Tarlov, who hired Isabel Mounier. 
got Dominique Lafon as consultant winemaker, um, I don't think that there was a lot of budgeting. You know, there was sort of a, a free-for-all, so to speak. And you know, we got uh, concrete fermenters, wooden fermenters, state-of-the-art equipment. The entire facility was you know, built to suit electricity, water. Um, it, was, it was lovely. And you know, we, we took this extremely iconic vineyard. Um, everybody that had purchased fruit off of the property was offered fruit that year. And I think everybody was so angry that only Christum took us up on that offer. And uh, yeah, everybody else is just like, you guys, you know, you're, you're, you're taking something beautiful away from a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I think I came into Oregon with this team as sort of like, a, I don't want to say an underdog, but there was a lot of people to sort of win over. Mm -hmm. And you know, we had some big shoes to fill. You know, when you look at like the Lynn Penner Ashes and the Mark Velocics and the Steve Dorners of this industry, um, yeah. you know, you, you wonder if you can compete. But with Dominique Lafon as the consultant, you know, picking fresh, keeping alcohols low, keeping acidity high, not overdressing wine. Um, I think it, it became very apparent after a short period of time that, you know, the critics were really pumped about what we were doing. You know, it was wine that we would make for ourselves that we thought was really tasty, that I think the critics also sort of gravitated to. You know, like you saw the vineyard for what it was. Um, I remember there's a lot of people questioning the picks. Like I, just, I remember Sterling Fox uh, when Isabel had ex shared with me like the first pick in 2007. You know, he's like, oh, you're picking now? Like you're crazy. And it's like, <laughs> no, we're not. Like this is this is what Dominique Lafon thinks is best. And you know, I don't I don't know how many people were courageous enough to to actually pick something with 21 bricks with rip-roaring acidity. And you know, they, people underestimate how much a wine can build in barrel and all the other things that you need to do to make that wine really tasty, complete, and long and get it across the finish line. But I think uh, being a part of that group and you know, a group that was really daring and you know, I'd say brazen enough to it just sort of change what Oregon had been doing. You know, and I think despite the fact that there are a lot of people angry with us, I think that we started to, you know, get a little street cred because I think the wines were showing well and, you know, we're charging $150 a bottle for a Chardonnay. So I think a lot of the Somme community across the United States was just like, who the hell do these people think they are? You know, like, I don't know if all that wine sold, but it was a statement. Mm -hmm. And just getting that wine into the right people's hands, I think was really great for Eveningland. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it helped us uh, achieve, I'd say a, a rather rapid success, coupled with all the other, uh, the, all the other pieces that we had in place. It was, um, it was a really good learning opportunity for me. Um, I know there's a ton of money spent. I always say like it was a multi-million dollar education, you know, just not only on, uh, you know, infrastructure and, and tanks, but also like at restaurants, mm -hmm. um, just giving the Somme community wine, uh, you know, just getting it into the right people's hands. I think after a while, our owner realized that as successful as we were in the eyes of the critics and, you know, we're getting great scores, 
I think that we could have maybe ran the company a little bit more efficiently, <laughs> just from a monetary monetary standpoint. So that started to come to a head while I was there, but um, it was fantastic. And while I was there too, um, Dominique Lafon would let me work harvest with him in Burgundy. So it's funny because when I was in the Loire with Domaine Joe Piton, at the very end of my trip, I got to taste that like. Roman and Conti, I got to taste with the Domaine Dominique Lafon, um, I'm sorry, Comte Lafon, and we, uh, yeah, we, we went all over the Cote de Nuit and the Cote de Bonne. It was such a cool experience. I had no idea where I was tasting or what I was doing, but I took meticulous notes, and I always remember Dominique Lafon smoking cigarettes in his, in his cellar. And I wrote like incredible wines, like, you know, it's just in, insanely good. And I was like smoking winemaker. <laughs> so I always had this like, this thing, like this spot in my brain for this guy. So it's funny when I applied for the job, I look back in my notes, I'm like, oh my God, I actually tasted this guy's wine. I mean, they're 3000 euros a bottle. Like this is gonna be incredible to work with this guy. So I, I was able to work with him at his uh, Domaine Dominique Lafon venture uh, two years in a row and we would, we would we had an operation called Evening Land Cote d'Or so we made wine in Burgundy so we would share the same cellar as Dominique so I got to work with him I got to make wines for our brand and then eventually in 2013 um, the a winemaker in France needed an assistant so they asked me if I wanted to be his assistant winemaker there and I jumped on it um, our owner had bought a chateau, so my wife and I, uh, you know, essentially I quit my job at Eveningland, Oregon. Uh, she quit her job selling wine. Um, we got our cat in a cat carrier <laughs> and uh, sold my car, rented out our house, and moved our lives over to France. And we're there for about a year, um, working in Burgundy, and it was incredible. I already had a, a huge love in my heart for the the country and. It was really cool to actually be inside Burgundy and see how it operated. Uh, we were a negotiant, mm -hmm. so we would buy fruit, we would buy juice, sometimes we would buy finished wine, and just learning about the courtier and how they operate, how they dictate price. Um, so I was there for about a year. I was hoping to be there longer, but there were a lot of changes being made in Oregon, and Isabel Meunier, uh, was was let go from Evening Land, and they asked me if I would come back and make wine in Oregon. So Raj Parr and Sashi Mormon were um, at the helm then, and it was great working with them. I had uh, you know a lot of experience working with the old guard. Dominique Lafon was still the consultant for a little while, and um, Raj and Sashi I'd say put a little bit more of a playful uh, edge on things. No sulfur. Uh, when fruit came in, which is just really hard for me to wrap my mind around because you know you can lose your fermentations to microbes very easily. So it was a it was a learning curve in that in that sense. Um, but after about a year of working with Raj and Sashi, I thought it was time to spread my wings. As hard as as hard as it was to leave Seven Springs, and you know especially working with with Raj. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this guy that tastes all over the planet and can get people's press programs or temperature curves on certain fermentations or, you know, just any technique. 
it was really cool to kind of see wine through his lens. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, in 2014, uh, after harvest and uh, all the wines were fit and stable, I, I made the move and I started to work uh, at Scott Paul mm -hmm. in Carleton and you know, a little bit more eclectic, not as large of a production. Um, they uh, were going through some restructuring and you know, the president assembled a new team, you know, rebranded the entire project. Um, very great group of people there. Some of the most incredible people I've ever met in my life. And Cameron Healy, who was the principal owner at the time, um, bought out Scott Wright uh, from you know, his share of the company. So Scott Wright Paul was no longer part of the company. Um, Cameron Healy started Kettle Chips mm -hmm. and Kona Brewing. So just the amount of like, uh, I'd just say like the business acumen, um, systems, food systems, and he's still to this day probably the most generous individual I've ever met in my life. So it was a really nice transition. Um, and then after being there for a few years, I realized that you know things were going maybe a little bit more slowly than I wanted them to. And um, I had the pleasure of working intermittently with Nicholas Kie, who is the COO of the Crimson Wine Group. So um, he, uh, he was talking to us about you know, the possibility of us making some wine with him. We had a contract with another winery in the area to make a secondary label. And we were playing around with the idea of making wine with him um, at the facility that he helped build in the Tri-Cities area of Washington. Mm -hmm. The prices are right. Um, he was just such a nice guy. Very, very bright. Um, knows winemaking, uh, knows sales. Uh, he's very business savvy. He just, he's, a, he's got his Master of Wine certification. So he's just a really good guy to, to get to know. And I texted him, I said, oh, congratulations on your new position as COO. You know, they have the right guy for the job. Um, and he always told me, he's like, it's not about knowing everything. Sometimes it's just about knowing a little bit more than the person sitting across from you. And I, I texted that to him, just like, har, har, har. And uh, the next day he accidentally texted me about some like, you know, basketball game or something. And I said, hey, uh, wrong Ian, but uh, it looks, looks like you guys are hiring a winemaker at Archery Summit. Like, <laughs> looks like somebody else is looking too, right? So he, he wrote back, like, I think you would be a great fit. Like, let's talk. So we talked. Um, and in my departure from Scott Paul, I had started a wine consulting LLC. And I had, I had began talking to a few potential clients. And I got really close to, you know, sealing the deal. And Nicholas and I spoke, and I decided to go for this job. And it's, it's been incredible. I mean, Archery Summit has been uh, operating successfully for 25 years. Um, Gary Andrus, I think, put some fantastic things in place and masterminding this operation after his setup of Pine Ridge and Napa. And, you know, Lee Bartholomew and, and Anna Metzinger and Sam Tannehill, you know, they're all people that I, I highly admire in this industry. And we've actually had them come in and give us, like, a sense of what the history of this place looked like. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to build an archive and, you know, collect that, that history somewhere. 
And Chris Maysepink, my predecessor, he's always, uh, always been a fun person to talk to in the industry. So it felt like a, a nice transition from you know, everything I've done in Oregon. Um, yeah, I, just, I feel like there's, uh, there's a lot of potential here. And I'm not indentured to any sort of style. I, I asked uh, Nicholas, you know, like, what sort of wine am I supposed to make or can I make? And he just said, make good wine. <laughs> you know, like, and I'm not, I'm not going to change, like, the, the pedigree or I, I don't think I'm going to go very far from where we've come or the wines that were made here before. But I feel like Anna started to sort of feminize the wine style and I feel like Chris May's Pink um, really started to like, you know, show the place more by not using a lot of you know, new oak influence and just being a little savvier in the vineyard. And that's something that I'm trying to carry on now. You know, I think making these wines concentrated and finessed maybe in a different way uh, than what was there before. Um, I'd say giving the customer something that delivers, but maybe delivering uh, just in a, in a slightly a slightly different sense. And it's fantastic too, because um, we're building a Chardonnay program right now, and we're getting some fruit from the Olamity Hills, where I cut my teeth, and it feels good to be able to make a Chardonnay that, you know, can, I'd say, help archery emerge as not only a strong pedo producer, but a place that makes really tasty Chardonnay as well. So it's been, it's been great here so far, and I've only been here for about a year. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, you've been here about a year, so this is your first, this is probably your first like full cycle. Like you've been there for a harvest, but now you've been here for the whole cycle since the last harvest. So tell me what you're kind of looking forward to in the upcoming, this harvest, next couple harvests. I mean, eliminating herbicides from our, uh, from our vineyards one at a time. Like we stopped spraying herbicides here at Summit. Um, our vineyard manager is, is very amicable to eliminating that. Just trying to figure out how much it costs to switch, and you know, just I, I don't I don't like to drink wines that uh, have chemicals. You know, I, you can get stuck in the minutia of you know, like glyphosate breaks down to this and that, or it doesn't, uh, or you can say, you know, we don't spray it, so you don't have to consume it. So I think it's it's fun working with Tim. He's an incredible vineyard manager. He's been farming for 37 years in the Dundee Hills. And he's, uh, he's a rock. He, he's, he's a great guy to work with. And you know, I'm just looking forward to and building my, my team up more. Um, I've got Corey, who's been in the cellar for 15 years. Um, Anthony, my enologist, uh, he's been here for approximately seven. And Brandon just came on about a year ago. And you know, I'd, I'd say in, in all of my career, there's probably been three or four teams that have just been just singing. And you just sort of know every step they're taking. And, you're dancing fast, but you know nobody's stepping on each other's toes. Mm -hmm. And I just I want to keep everybody that we have now and make sure they're happy. And I'd have to say too, I mean, Archerson is really good about taking care of people. I mean, you you've got caves and people walk in and it's like, oh my god, you know. Then the wines they like the wine. The wine's good, so they want to bring their friends. So I, our hospi our hospitality program is is really strong. Um, Karina Gordon and Ken Bullock, I think, do a really good job of you know, creating a very strong experience for people. And you know, we're, 
I think this is, and I don't know, you can quote me on this, but I don't know. But I'm, I'm guessing this is the first profitable winery that I've ever worked for. So it's kind of nice, you know, like developing a budget and, oh, I can't spend that because I didn't budget for it. And it's, it's fun because, you know, hospitality and the tasting room make money and then I spend it all in production. So it's kind of a nice, uh, nice give and take. But I'd say of anything, I just, I want to, I want to maximize, you know, the the acreage we have, we have currently about 83 acres producing. We have some that are about to come into production. So with all five vineyards that we own and farm in the Dundee Hills, we have approximately the potential for 100 acres, which ironically, uh, I think this is probably by design, fits perfectly into our cellar. So that's always, uh, that's always a good thing. But we're, uh, we're, just, we're always thinking about how to make our space more efficient. Um, you know, we've got a lot of tools because this is part of the Crimson Wine Group. You know, we've, we've got a lot of very bright individuals um, that work at different wineries that I can call up for advice. Um, we've got a very robust accounting firm. Nicholas is very, very smart at looking, uh, looking at things intelligently. He doesn't make decisions or doesn't have ideas that are very foreign to me which is so cool because sometimes you do work with people that have a strange way of looking at things. So I, I do feel like we've got all the makings to continue a very positive legacy here and you know, make, some, make some ripples and um, make some tasty wines. Speaking of that legacy, what would, how would you describe the legacy of Archery Summit and how, how it fits into kind of the Oregon wine history? I would say, uh, I mean, Gary Andrus, yeah, he's, he's, his, one of his slogans is bad to the bone. You know, like he liked to party. Um, I think he, you know, he liked to show people a good time. Mm -hmm. And I think he liked to make really incredible wines. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think Archery Summit, although there are other really strong players on this hill, I think Archery Summit is one of the, you know, more iconic Pinot producers in Dundee. I mean, Arcus, we purchased it in 1993. Uh, seven acres of that vineyard was planted in 1973. So we have one of the oldest you know, pieces of land in Dundee. And then of all five of our vineyards, you know, all of them are different sizes. Uh, a lot of them have different aspects. Um, I, think, I think we've done a really good job of kind of just making a reliable presence, making a reliable wine and I think, you know, in North America especially, especially a lot of the New World, it's about the experience. You know, people coming in and being educated uh, to exactly what the wine is and what we do and just kind of feeling good that everybody is giving them information from production to the hospitality staff. You know, like they know, they know what we're about. And I think that's, uh, that's really important. Do you feel like that, uh, in your experience in Oregon wine especially, do you feel like that's changed in terms of how much people ask of you and how much maybe knowledge they bring with them about Oregon wine? Are they asking for more than they used to? I mean, I think people like to geek out on certain things. It goes in waves like, so, uh, like what, what clone do you guys use here? You know, and you can really say anything. <laughs> I think a lot of time and they'll just be like, oh yeah, I think, you know, because we're anal analyzing everything we do so that we can put systems in place and plant intelligently and, and grow intelligently as a, as a region. I think sometimes the consumer gets hold of the, some of those terms 
and you know they I guess they get to learn with us mm -hmm. but you know I think I'm asking right now more questions than people are asking me in terms of what Dundee is all about um, I've been learning a lot I was in Eolamdi for years so I think a lot of my my winemaking approach is like how to ferment Eolamdi Hilpino mm -hmm. you know like the skins are thicker because of the Vanduza winds. Um, you know, they extract a lot more easily. And I just learned this last harvest that, you know, Dundee Hills doesn't. I think that, you know, I might only be able to take, to take a lot more out of those fermenters. You know, I'm able to maybe extract more than I ever have. And, you know, just listening to Aaron Bell talk about his approach at Domaine Drouin, um, when we're with a group of six winemakers he had touched on that and it was like oh sh that yes so it, it's it's figuring out like how to make something really tasty and iconic mm -hmm. and then you know taking into consideration all the other places that i've worked and mm -hmm. and bringing those in but i feel really good about chardonnay and um you know what i can do with with that and how to shape the wine and sculpt and approach it but um I had only worked in Dundee with Dundee Hill Fruit for three years at Scott Paul. So I worked with the Marsh Vineyard, Arterberry Marsh, um, fifth oldest vineyard in the, you know, in the state. And I really started to develop a sense of like, you know, what Dundee Hills can be. And I think uh, without that experience, I feel like I may be, I feel maybe a little bit more lost. Um, I do, I do like to approach wine from a very like humble standpoint, you know, I don't like to think that I know it all and, you know, that I'm a demigod and that, you know, like I'm just the master of fermentation. I think it's, it's very important to ask questions and, you know, to lean on my peers here in the short term just to see if there's something I may be missing. How would you describe your winemaking philosophy and, and maybe how it's changed over the years? It's a great question, yeah. I mean, I think about it all the time, <laughs> all the, every day, every minute of every day. Um, yeah, I'd say Dominique Lafon, you know, he would pick fresh. So, you know, we're picking with the intent of the potential alcohol being 13 to 13.5%, you know, so something that the ethanol isn't dominating, you know, something that the ethanol isn't making sweet, or when you put your nose in the glass, you know, you feel like you just, you're, it's like a fire-breathing fire, fire dragon coming at you. You know, I think that I don't, I don't like to go into that spectrum. But by picking fresh and with the way we ferment, like a lot of pump over, so trying to keep the fruit intact. Um, and, you know, towards the end of ferment, we do a lot of post-fermentation maceration at a high temperature. So by doing that at the very end of the ferment, you're extracting quite a bit from that fruit but because you're picking it fresh, I don't think that you're extracting too much. You're just sort of completing the picture. And I think it's these, these steps that you take by you know, making a wine with more elegance that really helps you see the place. Um, and it doesn't stop there. I mean, we don't put our wine into really obvious, really toasty oak. You know, we don't want that to dominate. I mean, there's no substitute for, uh, for oak tannin on the palate. You know, like, I, I think that it really helps to kind of, uh, you know, balance the wine out. But I don't necessarily want the consumer to perceive oak in my wines. Um, and that's something that I learned from Dominique. I think moving over to the, like, the Raj era of my Oregon career, 
you know, there's just you know, no sulfur. Uh, I tried it one more year after working uh, with Raj and Sashi, and I'll never do it again because it's too scary for me. And it's not my wines and not my money. So I like to play it a little safer there. So I guess I'm conservative in that sense. But, you know, Raj would play a lot with whole cluster, mm -hmm. and he would put whole cluster on top of the fermentation, which, in my mind, because we pump over so often, it creates like more of like a, a spicy, like Earl Grey, cardamom, um, just sort of a delicate lacing into, into the, the nose of the wine. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily get a lot of that whole cluster tannin, which I feel like if you put on the bottom of the fermentation, with how hot I like to get post-ferment, I feel like you can get a lot of that, you know, short-chained, more aggressive green tannin. So I learned, you know, to, to put on top with Raj, um, we say pick and form the wine from Dominique. And, you know, I wavered a little bit. When I was at Scott Paul, my predecessor was Kelly Fox, who's very esoteric in her winemaking, and she's extremely playful. And, you know, I tried to bridge the gap from, you know, esoteric to, you know, my Dominique Lafon roots. And I have never been, I'd say, more doubtful of wine I've made in my life. I was like, I had PTSD. I was like, oh, I should have done this differently, that differently. And I didn't really understand the wines, the, the wines I made. And I vowed to myself that anywhere I ever work again, I'm making the wines the way I want to make them, you know? And when I talked to Nicholas and he said, I'll just make them good. It's like, well, here's a bottle. This is what I made in 2016 from Marsh, which is right next to Arcus, one of our vineyards here at Archery Summit. And it's like, this is what I want to make. And he's like, okay, like, I like that. It's really good. So yeah, I think, uh, I think that's where I'm at now. I, and it just, I guess uh, a lot of people I find in this industry, if they make wine a long time, they're just like, oh, you know, that's the this way I've been doing it. So why would I, why would I change it? But I think the, the best question you can ask, ask yourself is, you know, how, how do I make it better? You know, like, can I do something differently that I'm not thinking about now that'll make this wine better than I've done it before? Which causes you to, you know, really, say, test yourself. And we go through a process here where I actually write descriptions of the wines that I'm making. Mm -hmm. So my boss is like, okay, what are you going for? So it's like, you know, Arcus. Um, I want a little bit of whole cluster nuance to come through on the nose you know, darker fruited, um, you know, well, actually blend of dark and red fruit. So I think Dundee Hills is a little bit more red fruited, but you know, like a, a just a spattering of new oak, um, you know, present tannins, but long and linear. And he's just, okay, how are you gonna do that? And it's like, well, this is how I'm gonna make the wine. So I write it all down. And then every single year we'll pick uh, a competitive set you know, something that Nielsen rated highly, somebody that's kicking butt here in the Dundee Hills, mm -hmm. and we'll set up a double blind tasting. And we'll go through, and each one of my guys in production with Nicholas, we'll rate the wines, we'll run statistics on them, and if ours is on the top, it's like, yay, we're doing something okay. But if ours is in the middle or on the far end of the tier, we have to question our approach. Mm -hmm. And is our approach, is it intelligent? Mm -hmm. So we're always sort of, keeping ourselves mm -hmm. on our toes so that we don't get complacent or comfortable. And I think it's really important. And a lot of that is driven by Nicholas. 
which is you know one of the many reasons I admire the guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. What does it mean for you to see a wine with a Oregon on its label or Willamette Valley on its label? I mean, I think this is there's a lot of diversity in this industry, and yeah, I love to support our industry. I think there's a lot of exciting things uh, happening, but you know, it's fun to try to characterize the state or the Willamette. But I do. I think there's I think there's this uniting sort of taste and identity. You know, there's a lot of spice, um, forest floor, earthy. Um, I find a lot of Oregon wines to be fruity. You know, um, I think there's definitely an identity here. And yeah, when I'm looking at an Oregon wine, I, I guess it's, uh, it's something that I revert back to. What's the, you mentioned a couple times, uh, to you, what's the significance behind like a sense of place? What does that mean to you in a wine? Well, I, I think that there's a lot of things that can happen in a vineyard, good or bad. You know, if the vines are healthy or the vines are, you know, struggling to become healthy. You know, if they have enough nutrient or they don't. If they're in a rocky soil or they're in a deep soil. If they've got um, a good exposure to the sun or a challenging exposure to the sun. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that I think a vine does, like out in the vineyard that kind of brings it to the finish line and creates a sense of itself and you know out of all 82 acres that we currently have now we have 75 different blocks so there's not a lot of um, monolithicness here you know there's a lot of diversity and you know in each one of our sites we have a, a lot of diversity so I think in, in able to or in my attempt to capture the sense of place from each vineyard we, we work with you know, there's a lot of different components to work with and I think it, it helps me sort of capture you know what that wine truly is mm-hmm. and again like not obscuring it with oak or not over extracting in the fermenter or not just saying like hey it's a Tuesday like it's two punch downs today guys like we taste our wines mm-hmm. and we try to fill them in um, depending on the vintage or you know maybe a solenoid breaking and the tank is unnecessarily heating all night because that can happen you know like there's no there's no recipe to what we do and i'm always trying to bring in uh very balanced healthy fruit from the vineyard to the winery and uh you know that's i think that's what i think about when i think about a sense of place and then what about what you would hope a consumer would get from a bottle of wine that you made I want them to taste like all of our wines side by side from a given vintage and say, okay, like that one's different than that one. Like they're essentially all different. And I like Arcus because it's the most textural or I like Red Hills because it's the showboat and it's the prettiest and the, the most electric and fruity. You know, I want people to, to see you know, sites and start to relate with them and grow with them and you know, try to stay away from, you know, monolithic uh, sort of drowning effect so that all the wines can, can kind of speak their own way. What's, what's something about being a winemaker that caught you off guard? What was something you weren't expecting about having this as your job that you're, that, that just was like, I wasn't expecting this at all. I guess a lot of people are pretty awestruck when they meet winemakers. Like every, every once in a while, like, oh my god, you're a winemaker. And I think it goes into that sort of like, there's this, uh, this sort of biblical, um, there's a sort of transcendence that happens, you know? And like in my mind, it's like, oh my god, 
you know, like we're fermenting juice. You're trying to farm uh, intelligently. We're trying to save money where we can. Uh, but I, I, I do feel like there's this sort of like this uh, grandiose idea of, of winemakers that people have, mm -hmm. which I think is, is really amusing, you know? It's almost like there's certain markets you go into and they're just like, oh my God, like you're a winemaker. I can't believe I'm eating a winemaker. <laughs> so I, I think that's, that takes me off guard sometimes because I, I think what we do is, is hard, but I don't think it's like, you know, magical. You know, I, I, for me, it's more of like, you do the best you can every day, you try to make really good decisions. And I think that translates in, into like a tasty glass. But I'm always, I'm always shocked about that. But, and I guess too, I, I always tell people, if, if you are a winemaker, if you can uh, manage people well, you can make sure that you know, the vineyards are being farmed effectively. Um, you can make consistent wine from year to year. You can avoid things like microbes taking over your wine. You know, like there are so many um, moving pieces and there's so many decisions to make. I think you can do anything. Like it just teaches you how to multitask. It teaches you how to prioritize, um, depending on the company, how to budget. And you know, like I just, I feel like it makes you able to do a lot of things at once. Yeah. So I always say like, I think winemakers, uh, I think if you ever choose to do something else, I think uh, winemakers are you know, in a pretty good spot to, to jump into almost any profession. Sure. Yeah. Is there a certain part of the job or part of the year that you prefer or look forward to? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I like after harvest just to like, I think it's, it's one of the strangest periods. Like it's almost like you, you're working harvest. You almost go into auto mode. Like it doesn't matter how many hours you work, like you have to be there, you know, and you're just praying to God that all the fruit comes off well and you don't run into any big issues. But I'd say, you know, that the high you get post harvest where like you look at your wife and your kids and you're like, oh my God, we can do anything we want right now. <laughs> and, I, and I earned this, you know? And you just, you have so much satisfaction because you know, that's a huge milestone. Mm -hmm. So I think the satisfaction of completing a season is, is probably one of the best feelings you can ever have because you don't get it every year either, you know? Some years you have PTSD because you are second guessing every decision you made. And some years you nail it. And some years, you know, like you have to tell yourself like you could do better. But I think that's probably one of my favorite feelings. Um, and the other one too is, you know, in terms of just working is, is blending. Um, going through the process with the guys, just sitting down and being able to objectively look at everything we've done and you know put it together i mean even in the background right now you can hear them you know racking out a barrel uh into tank and you know that that's a fun process because the wines have kind of shed off all the funk the sulfur is not sticking out and you know they're they're ready to drink and it's our job to you know put this with that and try to make the best you know permutation of what we did in fermenter. I'd say it's probably my, my other kind of like favorite time of the year. Yeah. 
you mentioned the kind of building the Chardonnay program here. Uh, what else are you, are you seeing as you look in the future here at Archery Summit, say if you look a, a decade down the road? A decade, it's funny. It's, that's, that's actually like how long. I, that's, I, I think of myself being here 10 years. Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, I, if, if I could stay here longer, of course, but I think by then, maybe half Chardonnay, half Pinot Noir. Because currently, you know, we're somewhere in the realm. And you, I, could, I could actually give you a firm number, but I'd say we're probably 80 Pinot, 20 Chard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, someday, without scaring off our, our loyal, like, Pinot people, you know, that don't like Chardonnay, like, don't worry, we're still making the same amount of Pinot for you. But I'd love to scale up mm -hmm. a really healthy, large Chardonnay program. That's, you know, that's something I'd like to do. Um, you know, as we grow into our space too, we're, we're uh, accommodating a lot of people here. And I would love to, you know, be part of, you know, like maybe an expansion, um, building a thoughtful tasting room space, you know, sort of revolutionizing how we process fruit, um, just making sure that we're, we're constantly kind of on the A game in terms of fermentation equipment and, um, I, yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess on the human side of things too is just making sure that you know, archery is very involved in, in the community. Um, as much as I like to talk to people about what they're doing in the Dundee Hills, like I, I, I want them to know that they can always come here and, and taste and, you know, we're an open book, we're a friendly group. You know, we're, we want to be more inclusive than exclusive. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's something that I'm really trying to build right now. And I think that if we're successful, it's gonna spiral out of control in a very good way. <laughs> because I, I, want, I want to be like the Gary Andrus, you know, like party guy that has people here and, you know, just create an environment where people can learn from one another. Talk about the, the changes you've seen in Oregon. I know it hasn't been the longest time you've been here, but the changes you've seen in terms of, um, I guess, just what the biggest changes you've seen have been. What is it that's changed the most since you saw Oregon for the first time? I think, I mean, there's a lot of collaboration. I think just talking about collaboration, we have a Chardonnay technical tasting every year, and we have approximately 110 wineries show. They pull samples out of barrel. Uh, you know, they put it to, just a, a container with a number, and people can go through and taste everything by AVA, um, by pick date, or pH, crop load. And there's a variety of different ways to go through that tasting. And then everybody sits down at a table of 10 or 12 and talks about how they tasted. And I think globally, you get a really good sense of like where the vintage was for everybody. Like stylistically, what direction people are going, um, I think like just in general what the, the Chardonnay tastes like that year and it's a really good opportunity for people to talk to one another mm -hmm. and you know say oh, this works for me have you tried that I don't know if that's working for you maybe you should try something else um, I think it's really important and there's miniature experiments that are done as well that uh, are shared with the group at the same time so it's like it's efforts like those that I think make us better and stronger and in terms of Pinot, I think there's so many people making Pinot and that have made Pinot for years that I don't know if there's uh, like a forum that we could have like that, you know, where you could be very honest with your neighbor and 
you know, to say like, that's not working for you, or that's working really well for you. So I, I think you, know, you find, or I find myself um, talking to you know, smaller groups of people and figure out what, what's working well for them and what's not. Mm -hmm. But I, I do feel like there's a, there's a really strong collaborative nature to Oregon, and I think a lot of people see that and know that you need uh, your community to, to sort of help you, help you move forward. Have you sensed it changing at all with the growth of the, the rapid growth of the industry and the kind of increased competition, competition for shelf space? You know, I saw it more, I felt it more when I was uh, at my previous job. Like we had a $20 skew. Um, we had Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Pinot Blanc. And I think because there was so much fruit in 14, 15, and almost arguably 16, yeah, there's a lot of like here today, gone tomorrow brands, which, you know, kind of raced uh, to uh, like a stop or raced to a dis discontinued skew. Mm -hmm. So I think from that standpoint, um, it's a little challenging. I think from Archery Summit's standpoint, you know, we, uh, we have a, like our Dundee Hill Pinot in distribution right now. We had Premier Cuvée, mm -hmm. and because we went from Premier Cuvée, which everybody knew about, to our Dundee Hill Pinot, uh, we raised the price a little bit. We subtracted uh, a Ribbon Ridge vineyard called Looney, so that we can make it as, like an AVA-specific wine, and it's doing really well right now. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're wondering if we have enough of the wine for distribution, which is a great problem to have. And again, like I think we create a really um, inviting experience here. I mean, we have caves, so I, I think our, our tasting room traffic is is really good. Um, you know, I I feel like we've got enough enough channels as a, as a company to move in, and I I feel like things are moving well for us, and we don't need to compete at that really low price point um, at the 20 something. So I, I think right now the, the price brackets that we're in and the, I'd say the higher priced wines that we make enables us to maybe not be as competitive with other people. Mm -hmm. um, but don't get me wrong, I, I feel like the second we start making bad wine or you know, we change what we're doing here from a hospitality perspective, I think that we, we would definitely feel it. But I think we're firing on the right cylinders right now. Yeah. So what, is, what do you see as you look ahead for the Oregon wine industry in general, as you look, I say, again, a decade down the road? I think, you know, we'd be crazy to not think about global warming. Um, and I'm quoting Ben Castile here. Uh, I don't think that we necessarily need to think about planting, you know, different varieties and hanging our hat on those. I think we should be asking ourselves how to treat Pinot Noir differently. You know, what rootstocks we're using. Are they really working? You know, how do we measure that? Do we need different trellis design? You know, what, what does that look like? How do we deal with these really hot days? How do we deal with no moisture in the soil if we're obsessed with, you know, not using irrigation? Um, I think it's trying to maybe rethink what what we've done and you know not necessarily talking about like planting Cabernet Sauvignon because I do feel like there will be years where people won't be able to ripen their crop in the Willamette so I, I don't think that we're quite there yet um, and then again collaboration I think that we just we need to communicate with each other as an industry we need to isolate what's working and what's not um, 
And you know, I, I think that there's going to be a lot of people coming in from California and Burgundy. I mean, they already are. There's going to be a lot of interest here, and you know, we're still working out uh, kinks in our legislation to make Oregon a very robust wine-growing region. So I, I, I think it's, yeah, being involved in the legislature and you know, talking to one another and making sure that we all have Oregon's best interests in mind. Are there certain challenges or obstacles that you see as you look ahead that you're concerned about? I mean, I think that in, in terms of winemaking, we, we do a lot of whole cluster inclusion and uh, we're going to do some experimentation this year, but 70% of the composition of a cluster is water. So by putting that in our fermentation, I feel like it helps dilute uh, the ethanol content. It brings our alcohols lower. Um, you know, we're changing the way that we till. We're using more, we have more clods in the soil instead of pulverizing the soil down to little bits to prevent evapotranspiration, increase microbial activity underneath the clods, and hopefully retain some moisture underneath those clods. Um, you know, I'm always looking at ways to kind of work with what Mother Nature is giving us. And you know, that's something that's always top of mind for me and all my conversations with our vineyard manager. That's something I definitely think about as a, as a challenge moving forward. What advice would you have for someone who wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry today? Um, it's hard. You've got to be good every step of the way. You know, if, you, if you're not good in maybe two spots and you're great in all the rest, you'll be fine. But it's a very competitive industry. You know, I, I really do try to dissuade people getting into this industry that I don't think are good for it. And it's not because, uh, you know, I don't want them to compete with us or whatever, you know. But I do feel like there's a lot uh, to soar through and there's, there's a lot to learn in this industry. And you know, I think I always try to tell people, you know, what it's really like and that you can't just sort of uh, prance in and, you know, you just, you just don't drink wine all day long. You know, it, it, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and time that goes into it. But, uh, you know, I, I think on the flip side of that, when you see somebody that's hyper-talented that comes from, a, you know, a really strong background and is an asset to our industry, you know, those are the type of people that you're like, here, like, come and hang out with us and, you know, like, learn from us because we want to learn from you. But I, I think, yeah, attracting talent right now is, is a very uh, smart thing to be thinking about as an industry. Okay, that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything we didn't cover that we should have, anything I should have asked that I didn't? I mean, I just, I think I, I, I just want to emphasize like how, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just doing one little bit in this, uh, this massive cog at R3 Summit. I just want to say that, you know, without our team, we wouldn't be who we are. And my guys in production work their tails off. Like the people we have in the vineyards are incredible, you know, and, and hospitality again. Yeah, you know, they, uh, they bring people through here, you know, they help kind of build our brand and um, they're, you know, they're, the, I'd say the biggest reason people perceive us the way they do. So I just want you guys to know like how, I, how important I think our team is here. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much yeah, for your time for your back. answers. So. Oh, totally. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Awesome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. 
And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.